Well, I'm pleased to be joined today by Vivek Jha, who's the Executive Director of the George Institute for Global Health, India. He's also a Professor of Nephrology and James Martin Fellow at the University of Oxford, and he has a co-joint uh, Professor of Medicine at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And he's also the current President of the International Society of Nephrology. Um, so, Dr. Jha, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Thank you for inviting me, Todd. Pleasure to be here. So I have to start um, with a, a interesting coincidence, which is that you and ASM President Anupam Agarwal have known each other for quite some time. Uh, when did you first meet? Well, that's really interesting. I don't think there's, uh, there's ever been this coincidence, and perhaps there will never be one again. But Anupam and I met uh, during our medical residency. I was six months ahead of Anupam in our institution. So I actually met him in July 1986 uh, when he came down to do his medical residency. And since then, uh, we have known each other. So we trained uh, in medicine and then followed by our training in nephrology together. And uh, we spent uh, some time uh, after our training doing a kind of semi-faculty job here before Anupam uh, moved on to US and I continued in the same position. So. We go back more than uh, 32 years now. Uh, during his medical residency, he did a project which led to the first publication in the journal Kidney International from India. So that, that was a time uh, really that marked Anupam for, for greater good. And it's not a surprise that he has risen to where he is, both in terms of uh, his uh, professional accomplishments and in terms of his service uh, to the nephrology community uh, through uh, various societies, including a, including the ASM, uh, of which he is the president now, very deserving. I hadn't realized that he had the first publication from India and, and Kidney International. Um, I'll we'll come back later in the discussion to talk more about ISM, but I'm just sort of curious as to what you're seeing with Kidney International in terms of submissions related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Like many journals, uh, you know, uh, Kidney International has published uh, a significant number of papers, original papers, as well as review articles, commentaries on COVID infection. Uh, the same has been seen in other journals, including the Journal of American Society of Nephrology, the Clinical uh, Journal of American Society of Nephrology, and other journals uh, as well. I think in terms of uh, the, uh, the number of publications that we have seen uh, in the last two or three months, COVID has been quite remarkable. In general, I have to say that uh, uh, the number of good quality papers has been actually outnumbered by good uh, by uh, the number of poor quality papers. And when I say this, I am excluding uh, Kin International as well as the uh, Jason, C. Jason from that list. Uh, but I think we just need to be careful about uh, uh, being able to separate good science from bad science. Uh, in, at this time when uh, when publications are a direct of them. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because both organizations have such an important role related to being publishers. And so I think the point you're raising around the peer review process and the importance of the, the quality of, of how seriously the editors take the quality of what they're producing and, and some of the challenges we're having with other journals, um, you know, a lot outside the kidney arena, but also just how the publishing industry is changing and how that's going to alter, I think, moving forward, how we 
um, both um, curate but also distribute uh, information is, is really an interesting issue and obviously something that ASN and ISN share as, as goals because of our role as publishers. Yes, indeed. So uh, in Kid International, at least, whenever uh, a COVID-related paper is submitted, uh, since it is such so topical and a rapid review uh, is important, but so so is uh, a, rig a rigor of the review. So generally, one of the editors would kind of shepherd the paper, uh, find uh, uh, find reviewers who would be willing to perform a rigorous review over a relatively short period of time, turn it back to the authors for re revisions, if any, are required, and then work with them in really making sure that the, the final product that comes out is not only worthy of the publication, but also worthy of, of the authors who, who actually uh, start the work. We uh, recognize that uh, some of this work comes from countries and places where uh, English is not necessarily the first language, and uh, many of these researchers have not had the opportunity to, uh, to write too many papers. So doing this kind of hand-holding is important, and I'm sure other journals uh, like Jason, C. Jason are doing the same. I wanted to circle back to the situation with COVID-19 in India. If you could just sort of describe currently what's happening and sort of the progression of the pandemic in, in, in your country. COVID-19 uh, remains a very active problem in India uh, right now. So uh, even though we had our first case in India towards the end of January, for about six weeks or so, there weren't too many new cases. And it produced, uh, in a way, a false sense of security that perhaps India was going to escape. But of course, biology always catches up. And it was around uh, the first week of March, uh, uh, then uh, when it, it started to become apparent that uh, COVID will, uh, will hit India as it was uh, sort of ravaging other parts of the world, had started to, uh, to flare in, in, in US, uh, was already uh, raging in, in countries like Italy and, uh, and, and some other uh, Western European countries. And so that was the time the, uh, the healthcare authorities in India woke up to this. And one of the first things they did was to announce a lockdown. Uh, so that lockdown came into effect mid-March. The lockdown has been lifted partly in some, uh, some areas of the country. But during this time, one has seen a number of uh, uh, cases, the number of cases going up almost constantly. Uh, although we haven't seen a, a rapid surge in large number of cases, I would say that is partly because we are not testing enough number of people here in India. India has one of the lowest per, uh, per capita testing rates in the world. So uh, it's difficult to kind of project where the, uh, where the, uh, the, uh, the trajectory of cases is going. It's fair to say that uh, we are not seeing any decline in the number of cases. The, the number of new cases being discovered is going up uh, day on day. Uh, just like in US, uh, there is significant geographic uh, concentration of cases in, in, in some cities. For example, in Mumbai, where there are slums and people live in very difficult circumstances uh, in, in, in crowded housing. Uh, they don't have uh, always access to running water. We talk about hand hygiene, but these people don't have uh, the luxury of practicing hand hygiene or even maintaining social distancing. And so uh, when even one or two cases of COVID erupt in, in that community, 
it's likely to spread very quickly, which is what we are seeing. Uh, in addition to that, in India, since uh, we are uh, what the World Bank describes as a low income, middle income country, and this story is going to be repeated in, in other countries with similar economies, uh, where we have a large number of people who are uh, very poor and depend on almost uh, daily wages for survival. So during the lockdown, suddenly they, they, uh, they didn't have any work. Uh, in many instances, they didn't have any uh, roof to live under. And so uh, they didn't know what to do. As a result, uh, people tried to get back to their homes, uh, which led to large-scale migration of people, uh, which, which was very unfortunate. And, and since public transport had stopped, uh, these people didn't uh, have a way to sometimes travel uh, several hundred kilometers, and, and there were heart-rending stories of people walking across. So it's been difficult. I think the problem has been uh, both medical as well as sociological, uh, which uh, which has uh, impacted large sections of Indian society. Uh, the story has mostly been uh, told uh, about what the situation is in urban areas. Uh, we don't have uh, sufficient information about what is going on in rural communities. Uh, once the lockdown is lifted and the movement of people from urban to rural uh, uh, parts of India begins, uh, I'm afraid we can see an uh, uh, increase in the number of cases even in rural areas. But that all remains to be seen. As I said, the cases in Mumbai, Chennai have increased quite rapidly in the last few days. So all the hospitals there uh, that are managing COVID patients are more or less full and uh, very soon it looks like they will run out of capacity. Now, one more uh, pertinent thing to point out here is that the healthcare system in India is, is weak. Uh, and this is, again, a feature which is common to many uh, countries that have similar economies. Uh, so in the, in, in the presence of this weak healthcare system, the ability of the system to respond in a resilient manner to any acute stress is, uh, is minimal and that is what we are seeing uh, we don't have enough workforce to be able to do uh, sufficient degree of contact tracing uh, so the frontline healthcare workers in the community who provide care to pregnant women and young children they have been pressed into service uh, in identifying and tracing patients with covid what this has done is to take away the ability of the health system to provide care to patients with uh, pre-existing conditions uh, like cardiovascular disease, like diabetes, uh, like kidney disease. Uh, these people have uh, been deprived of their ability to, to go to their hospitals because the hospitals are closed to all non-emergency services. Uh, telemedicine uh, has been helping a few people, uh, but again, not everybody has access to uh, those tools uh, by which they can uh, they can contact their doctor using one of these technologies. Uh, supply chains have been interrupted, which have led to a scarcity of uh, availability of essential medicines. There have been challenges in providing care to patients with kidney disease, such as those who are on dialysis, uh, because they are either not able to access their dialysis centers uh, due to lack of transport, or some of the dialysis centers have reduced their capacity uh, because they have had to stagger uh, their staffing um, uh, patterns. Uh, they have had to reduce the number of beds because of the need to maintain 
appropriate distancing between the two beds. So certainly uh, these people have had to uh, you know, find ways of either making do with reduced number of dialysis, and sometimes they uh, they have to you know uh, present in an emergency situation to uh, emergency rooms, which obviously means that their outcomes are going to uh, get worse. So there are a number of challenges which are related to um, the way the healthcare system is structured, and I'm afraid that. This is something which India shares with many low, low middle income countries. I'm curious in terms of decision making from the government, is, is, is the situation in India where it's, it's centralized and it's coming from a, from a national level or is it more of a situation that we face here in the United States where the individual state has been taking the lead in, in sort of determining what works for that individual state as opposed to a more federal response? That's a very good question, Todd. So as, as you know, India is a country of 1.35 billion people. Uh, it, it has a federal structure. Uh, so there is a, a central government that makes policies, but then we have states that decide how to implement those policies on their own. So even though the, uh, the, the federal policies have been decided in the case of a coronavirus response also by the union government, uh, but states have this, taken their own different paths of implementation. So as a result, a few states have uh, have done better and, uh, and and terms like model are being used to to describe the practices. So worth mentioning is uh, the example of the South Indian state of Kerala, uh, which has a better public primary healthcare system in India and 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 the and greater degree of resilience. This is this has traditionally been the case. So the response by Kerala has been much more proactive, uh, aggressive, and uh, they have been able to uh, contain the number of cases in that particular state. There has been a significant difference in the response of different states. Just so we can understand um, in terms of the, the different states, is there is it a situation again i'll use the united states as a comparison where you have some states that are primarily urban and others that are more rural is it is it the same sort of division in india or is it is each state have both a, a large urban and rural component there is not much of urban rural difference in india in different by way of uh, difference in between states so about 60 to 70 percent of uh, Indian population is rural in pretty much all states. However, social development indicators are different in different states. So uh, the South Indian state of Kerala has, uh, has the best social development indicators out of all states in India, both in rural and in urban areas. Uh, they have a more resilient primary health care system, uh, even uh, in other times. And so their response to the coronavirus pandemic has also been more agile, and they have been able to contain cases much more effectively and provide care to people with other conditions also in a more uh, systematic manner. Uh, on the other hand, there are a few other states which are relatively backward uh, with the poorer social development indicators and uh, less developed health systems uh, where the response has not been as good. As a result, those states uh, have uh, even more limited testing abilities, and uh, the number of cases have been going up uh, relatively rapidly there. Shifting gears a little bit, um, we had 
talked in the beginning about your role as the president of the International Society of Nephrology, and I'm curious as to how ISN has responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. So the ISN was impacted very strongly by the COVID pandemic, uh, but in a very unusual manner. Uh, the International Society of Nephrology has its World Congress of Nephrology, uh, and the 2020 World Congress of Nephrology was planned for, for the end of March in Abu Dhabi. Uh, which is right when COVID pandemic hit. And we had to make the, at that time, sound, which seemed like a very difficult decision uh, to uh, cancel the World Congress of Nephrology. Now in retrospect, even though it has been uh, less than two months, uh, it, you know, it, it sounds like it, it should have been such an easy decision to make. So, so that was our first uh, impact uh, of, the, of, of the COVID pandemic, but once, we had put that behind us. Uh, the ISN recognized the, uh, the need for information sharing and knowledge exchange uh, in between the global nephrology community. And so, uh, like uh, most other renal societies, uh, such as the ASN, uh, the ISN started collecting information uh, which would uh, service the information needs of its members and disseminated it uh, through uh, the standard portals, like the website, the ISN has an academy, education academy, through its journals. Uh, we, we talked about Kidney International uh, before. Uh, so the Kidney International rapidly published a few uh, peer-reviewed papers. Uh, the uh, online content rapidly increased, and uh, it, it was realized that we need to uh, provide information that alleviated anxiety uh, amongst the members and help them coordinate uh, their action. We thought the best way of doing this was at that time when uh, when information was still sketchy to try and learn from the experience of uh, of the communities that had uh, indeed be, been dealing with this. And so the ISN uh, organized uh, a few webinars uh, in in which um, uh, we had participation uh, from Italian nephrologists, and subsequently a series of webinars and and, and even podcasts. Uh, in which uh, uh, we learned from uh, nephrologists in, in different parts of the world, uh, United Kingdom, United States, uh, Western Europe, uh, even from China, uh, about how they were doing with, and dealing with this, uh, with this pandemic in, in their hospitals, both in terms of general medical care, but also in terms of uh, specific kidney care. Uh, issues about how they were dealing with uh, shortage of dialysis equipment, uh, helping patients uh, get appropriate kidney care. While we were doing it, we also realized that there was a strong need for advocacy to make sure that uh, even the non-renal community uh, understood the value of providing uh, appropriate attention to kidney health. Uh, and, and, and to that end, uh, we reached out to uh, uh, the American Society of Nephrology and the European Renal Association, and we crafted a statement of solidarity uh, calling for uh, not only better care for, for patients with kidney disease or those who are at risk of kidney disease, but also for protection of healthcare workers who are taking care of these patients and to the governments to make sure that any uh, glitches in the healthcare system that hampered uh, this kind of care uh, should be addressed. The ISN has an uh, official relationship with uh, the World Health Organization, so we lobbied the World Health Organization, and the WHO is currently in the process of, uh, of developing some guidance 
on uh, ensuring provision of care to patients with uh, pre-existing chronic conditions uh, and, and that guidance when it goes out of the government will hopefully uh, spur them into action. So this, this has been, uh, this has been uh, the response in terms of kidney care, but we have also started interaction with other uh, societies that, that deal with other non-communicable diseases, for example, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, through the Global Coalition for Circulatory Health and other societies, even of other, you know, professionals like the Renal Pathology Society, the International Society of Hemodialysis, the International Pediatric Nephrology Association, because even, even though this disease does not affect children so much, uh, it, it is their caregivers who get affected and, and thereby the lives of children is indirectly uh, uh, impacted as well. I'm struck that ISM's both philosophy and approach has been so similar to ASM's. And, and just to, to highlight and commend you for the joint statement that, that ISM led and then it was co-signed by and, and developed by um, the current president of your ADTA, um, Professor Carmen Zakali and um, Dr. Agarwal from ASM. Um, that statement, which was issued by the three societies on Tuesday, April 28th, um, was entitled Ensuring Optimal Care for People with Kidney Diseases During the COVID-19 Pandemic. And I think you know, it, it generated a fair amount of, of attention, both in the traditional media, but also, as you mentioned earlier, on social media. And I think there's probably other opportunities as we move forward over the summer through the, the fall into next year, um, you know, living with this pandemic and trying to navigate it, the three societies um, can continue to, to collaborate and, and, you know, complement one another in terms of our efforts. And so I just wanted to commend you for, for everything ISN is doing, but also taking the initiative in terms of this joint statement, because it really would not have happened without your, your effort. No, thanks, Todd. I think, as, as you say, we we are in, in, in a kind of world which uh, uh, I think has not uh, been seen by people in several generations. We have to not only deal with the, uh, the current uh, catastrophe uh, of the COVID pandemic, but I think by all accounts, it is clear that this, uh, this situation is going to stay with us for some time. And the long-term consequences of this pandemic will be felt uh, for several years not only uh, economic consequences, but health consequences, how we deal uh, with different health situations. Uh, how, do we, how, do we, how do we see our patients in our clinic? Uh, how do we provide emergency care you know, in, in, in someone who suddenly lands in, e, uh, and in ER and requires some kind of procedure, and we don't know whether that person is COVID positive or negative, how will, uh, how will we deal with that situation? Uh, not only in a fully equipped hospital, but also in, in a remote hospital located in, in some rural areas of Uganda or of Peru or something. Uh, we, we have to think about how do we, uh, how do, we do teaching uh, in the post-COVID era? Uh, what will happen to medical bedside teaching? Will, will it still continue in the same way or we'll have to find some different ways of doing it? Uh, how do we do research? Uh, one of, one of the important things that uh, as, as a researcher I have been acutely conscious of, and I'm sure there are many other colleagues who, who are being impacted by this, is the effect it is having uh, on clinical trials as well as labor basic laboratory research. Uh, many clinical trials have uh, either stopped or, or, or you know, patients are not able to receive investigational treatment. Uh, we clinical trials are so important because they generate information which will shape how we treat our patients uh, 
uh, inform us of the safety and efficacy of different treatment approaches. So we have to think all of this, and that can happen only only through global collaboration. Uh, we have to uh, develop ways of of having uh, of having uh, open platforms to exchange information and and to learn from each other and make sure that the information that is generated in one part of the world is shared wherever there is need for such information. Well, Vivek, thank you very much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it and I enjoyed talking with you and I hope you continue to stay healthy and safe and, and hopefully we will um, see each other uh, again in person soon, but I recognize that maybe some time now. Thank you, Todd. Uh, and I want to thank all the, uh, all the listeners of the podcast uh, up to the American Society of Nephrology and, of course, to my very old friend Anupam Adhwal through this. It was a pleasure. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the American Society of Nephrology.